Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn and I'm here with Matt Leach and we're in LA. We are. We're still in LA. We're doing our Adobe Max series. In this episode, we have Lauren Holm, founder of Home Sweet Home, based in Detroit. She's a designer, letterer, author, speaker, social media boss lady. How are you, Lauren? Hi. Good. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming <laughs> I on. I like that intro. <laughs> <laughs> So you're in Detroit. How long have you been in Detroit for? I've been there for about a year, actually. Yeah, we moved on Halloween 2017, so about a year. Wow. So why why the move? So we were traveling, uh, my boyfriend and I, extensively for about a year and a half. And we had left New York and went to go travel, and we were just going to move back by default. But we both realized uh, we work remotely. He's a product designer. I am a letterer. And so... We were like, let's move somewhere else. And then he decided to start a company. And so we were like, let's definitely move somewhere else because startup costs are just less somewhere else. And we had narrowed it down to Austin, Nashville, and Detroit as cool, creative, still had a major airport. Like we had pulled our friend group and those just seemed to be the places that people went to after New York. You know, they're kind of like post-New yeah. York cities. Oh, wow. <laughs> so do you have like a network of people in all of those three cities? Not necessarily. So what Detroit didn't have going for it is we had no connections in Detroit. I knew community of people in Austin because uh, Good Type, I don't know if that you know the type yeah, account, yeah. they're based there. So uh, okay. I, I know the founders. So we visited Austin, Nashville, and Detroit and for like three weeks each to get a feel for it. And we ended up picking Detroit, I think because of coming from New York, it felt the most urban and like the most at home. Similar climate, I guess, temperatures. And yeah, but the hardest part was definitely having no community there at first, but Instagram saved the day. Like I made some friends, <laughs> seriously, through Instagram, mm. because one thing I failed to realize moving as an adult who works for herself is there wasn't that automatic built-in community of going to an office place or having consistent human like interaction. Yeah. And I was like, wow, like making adult friends is significantly harder than making college friends. But luckily, yeah, a couple people reached out on Instagram and started to build my network that way. And now I now I have friends. <laughs> it is so hard though, isn't it? It's just that kind of like I, I work in a home office most of the time. Yeah, it's that thing about like I oh wow, I haven't left the house or even the office for the whole day. Oh yeah. My my weirdest moment was I think I had been working at home for about a year back in New York. And it was like the brunt of winter. It was so cold. I had a moment where I realized I hadn't opened my mouth to speak any words in like 72 hours. Wow. Because I was, I had done my grocery shopping for the week. Maybe I had ordered food. Oh, that's how I realized it. I ordered food on the third day. and Just had this dry mouth. (laughs) And when the delivery guy came, I said, thank you. When he delivered the food, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's the first word I've said in three days. Because I, I also don't hum or like sing around the house, and I just, it was a weird realization. But that's that's what can happen when you work alone. I've done that in a similar way, but just for an entire day, and I had a meeting at like five o'clock at mm-hmm. the end of the day, hopped on the train, went into the city, and then sort of saw everyone and just lost all grammar and ab- the ability to talk. And it was like a pitch meeting. <laughs> it's like, hi, everyone shaking hands with the wrong hand and all this sort of weird stuff. It's just being in your own head. I have a cat, so I talk to my cat. She doesn't talk back very often, but yeah, it it shook me as well. Do you work with music or? I, it depends. So if I'm coming out, if I'm writing, I can't really work with music. Maybe some like sound, like light electronic-y kind of music I can do. I definitely work best alone and like usually in quiet. I've actually been trying to work without music lately just to see kind of what, like what Questlove said at Adobe Max, giving myself some quiet time to just be in, you know, to allow ideas or thoughts to come and go as they please, as opposed to, I think by default, even when I'm like walking to the venue this morning from the hotel, just put in your headphones. Mm. Because that's, especially when you live in a commuter city, like like New York, everyone pops in their headphones, even if they don't really feel like listening to anything. And before I left New York, I'd say the couple months before I left New York, I was trying to walk around New York City with no headphones because I realized I had been living there for almost seven years and didn't really take in any of like the ambient like New York City noise because I just had my music like blaring in my ears. And yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff you over here and it's, yeah. it's kind of cool. <laughs> we, we're Everyone on, else talking really loudly because they've got yeah, headphones on. Yeah, totally. <laughs> we were having that conversation the other day just about those little snippets of conversation you pick up that you you spend the rest of the day thinking about like wh- how was that kind of part of a conversation? 
and just a bit with your headphones in, you never get any of that and, and you don't sort of have that kind of time to kind of. It's very true because also with music, I mean, it's good because music is creative and it yep. uh, it probably helps with your inspiration too, but you could overhear something by chance that sparks an idea. The first thing that came to mind was, oh, I'm totally blanking on the name, whoever directed American Beauty, I think it's Sam something. Oh, I'm he used to, to be, as well. I think he was married to Kate Winslet. I can't remember. But he was talking about how the inspiration for American Beauty came to him when he saw a plastic bag dancing in the wind. Yep. And Which is the start of the film. Oh, my goodness. I know. And that blows my mind because imagine he had been looking down at his iPhone instead. <laughs> ah! <laughs> it was so right. I think about True. that all the time. So, like, even when I, I travel a lot for work, when I'm, you know, taking cabs around the city, I'm going to places – I try to look out the window as much as I possibly can instead of being on my phone, unless I need to send an email or something. Because you never know what you're going to mm. soak in. I feel like we're all just like little sponges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you never know what bit is going to spark the big idea. Yeah. But back to your original question. Yes, I listen to music sometimes. If I'm just drawing, I've come up with a concept already. I've maybe outlined the lettering and I'm just kind of filling in and shading and tweaking, then I might even watch a movie or something. All right. But I like the background noise. In my first year of freelancing, I think I blew through every episode of The Office, Friends, and How I Met Your Mother as background noise yeah. while I worked during that first year of freelance. They're just perfect shows for that, aren't they? Just they are so perfect. Put them on the background. You've seen them a so thousand long, times. <laughs> and all the characters, once you watch a couple episodes like with your eyes, you don't have to look all the time because you know the voices yep. and like that. <laughs> Yeah. So I had a question that I wanted to lead with, but then we sat behind you yesterday in the keynote and you were doing this amazing piece of art, which was entitled Dear Burnt Out Art Director. And Ooh. then <laughs> I noticed today that you put up a blog post, which basically answered the whole question. <laughs> so the question originally was, you studied advertising and marketing in college and you've spoken about that design and lettering was more of a hobby on the side. How did the change happen? Now, I already know the answer because I read the blog. <laughs> you know what? That's amazing you read the blog post because I haven't promoted it yet. Oh, really? If you, I mean, it's on my blog right now. I was actually about to post about it during this keynote, but then the internet was so bad. Yeah, it was really bad this morning. <gasps> yeah. Nice. yeah. Oh, my goodness. And yeah, instead of getting frustrated, I was like, I'll just post it when I go back to the hotel. But yes, I have spoken about this publicly, but I don't really go into the nitty gritty, which is why I wrote the blog mm. post. I have an advertising background. I went to the School of Visual Arts in New York from 2009 to 2013. And I was dead set on being a creative director at a big ad firm. That's what I wanted. I you know, went to school for it. I worked my butt off. Everything was good. And then I got the job. I was a junior art director at BBDO in New York, which is, I was like, great. I have a big reputable agency yeah. for my resume. Like, you know, we were getting paid. I think our starting salary was 60,000 US, which to us, Prior to like ever being employed, we were like, yay, that means $5,000 a month. Not even thinking about taxes. And right. <laughs> <laughs> savings and 401k. We were 22. Like, <laughs> But anyways, it was, it was seemingly a lot of money. And when we got into advertising, my bubble was burst very quickly in terms of what I thought expectations versus reality. And I just, I got worn down by the like long, I guess, long hours, the kind of sporadic briefing and my biggest thing was never getting any work produced. I'm very much like a little like maker bee and I feel like we'd get briefed on something and we'd work on it for a week. We'd put together a deck, all the stuff, and then it would just be tossed aside so quickly because that's how advertising works is it's just more, more, more like, and then we'd get the occasional banner ad and just junior art director stuff. And like you said, on the side, luckily I had been, I always call it the life raft I didn't know I was making that I didn't know I would need. Senior year of college, even though I was an advertising major, I started a hand lettering blog on the side, not necessarily because I wanted to be a letterer. I just had a funny idea. And coming from an art direction background, I was like, lettering makes sense for this. So the, the I guess, short story for the idea was one of my girlfriends and I were drunk <laughs> and we were, it was the beginning of senior year. We were talking about all the stuff we wanted to do. And we had all these kind of grandiose plans for 2012 or 2013. And halfway through the conversation, we realized that there was no way we were going to do any of those things. We we're kind of talking big, like we were going to learn how to brew beer and bake croissants, and we were going to go to the gym every day, you know, all those kind of grand plans. And we realized we were totally bullshitting ourselves. And that sparked an idea. I was like, oh, 
we lie to ourselves all the time. I'm going to illustrate these. That's funny. And I just started a Tumblr blog for anyone who still uses Tumblr. <laughs> I had a patograph paper, a Sharpie, a pencil in my, in my dorm room. And oh no, we were in an apartment by then. And I just started making. And the really beautiful thing that I wish I could grasp onto now that I can't because I'm too far along is I wasn't trying to be a letterer. So I put zero pressure on myself to care what anyone thought of my lettering. I just thought it was a funny idea. I called the blog Daily Dishonesty. I was not publishing daily, which actually worked for the concept. And I would just put out a couple pieces a week, put it on Tumblr, and it started trending on Tumblr and started circulating around the internet. And actually, by the time I graduated college, a literary agent had seen my work on Pinterest, of all places, and... She was like, hey, I think that this project has publishing potential. Do you want to talk? And we sold it into a book. And so the same the same week I graduated college, I was signing a $25,000 book deal. Wow. And it was just this whirlwind for me. And I still got a job in advertising because my mindset at the time was I put in four years of work. If I switch paths now, it would it's going to be all for nothing. And I don't want to waste that. And I also didn't want to give my parents a heart attack of like putting me through school. Oh, she's and then, changed her mind yeah, again. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so I still got the job that I still very much wanted, to be honest, because that was, I mean, daily dishonesty, all the success that came with that was a happy accident. But I really didn't put any emphasis on it because it wasn't the career path I had in my mind for myself. And, you know, fast forward to me burning out in advertising after about, I think it took six months for me to finally admit to a friend that I was unhappy because I had this internal turmoil about this was supposed to be my dream job. It's only been five or six months. I can't leave yet. And I would, every month I would be like, I'm unhappy, but then give myself excuses for why I shouldn't leave. Right. Especially with a first job, I find that it's, if you've been at a job for 10 years and you're like, F this, I'm bored or tired, it like in my head was much more justifiable than leaving after six months. I didn't want people to think I was like an entitled millennial quitter. I didn't want, <laughs> you know, I didn't want people to think I was ungrateful, like for the job. I didn't want to admit that I had made the wrong choice, perhaps for me. Mm. And yeah, I think it took another another three months after that to really hit rock bottom of like, okay, this is not sustainable at all. You read the blog post, so my I call it hitting ravioli bottom. <laughs> not rock bottom, ravioli bottom. I was so burnt out from work. We'd been working on a pitch and I hadn't gone grocery shopping. I came home on the third night and I ate a pack of cold, uncooked ravioli for dinner. Wow. Because I was so hungry and just so tired. And I had, you know, this kind of epiphany where I was like, okay, I'm 23. Like I've been at this job for less than nine months. And if it's already come to this and I'm this tired and this burnt out, how am I supposed to do this for the next 30 years? Isn't that what a career is supposed to be? And that was really when I started being like, okay, what's what's my exit strategy? Like, what's plan B? And I had lettering. I had been lettering the entire time I was unhappy at my job. Actually, because I got the book deal when I graduated college, even though I started working right away, I was working on the illustrations for the book during that entire time. So it was kind of one of those things where I had this hobby on the side and it turned into, it organically morphed into my full-time job. The narrative I had in my head was, okay, lettering is kind of a thing. I'm getting a couple freelance projects. You know, I don't know if I can make a living on it. Everyone says freelance is hard. So I always kind of put it off in the back of my mind. I was like, well, maybe in five years, I'll come to the crossroads where I can decide if I want to do lettering or I can comfortably decide if I want to stay an ad. And so my timeline was five years down the road. And so it actually happened nine months down the road. And I did have this realization where I was like, okay, if I quit my job now and take a chance on myself at 23 and it doesn't work out, the worst case scenario is I just get the same job either at another agency or maybe the same agency. I can come back with my tail between my legs. Who knows? Getting, getting a new job at 23 versus 24 is more or less the same thing. And I realized that I would be doing myself a disservice by not trying because if I tried and failed, I would be in the exact same spot. If I never tried, I would be in the exact same spot. So it was the same, same kind of cost to me. And I like your logic. Yeah. <laughs> I, but I, it also sounds like you're finding ways to convince yourself to, to leave this job that you almost felt, you, you felt guilt that yes. you, yeah. And it was, it was this weird cycle of, 
being unhappy at my job and then feeling guilty about feeling unhappy right. at my job. It's a vicious cycle. Yes. And it, it's such a weird cycle and it just makes it worse. But I do, even to this day, like I still have to do a lot of processing and talking to myself in my head about decisions that I make because especially when you work alone or you don't have any, like in, in my case at 23, everyone else had a full-time job. When you don't have anyone else in your network to talk about those things with, it's extremely difficult to know if you made the right decision. And knowing what I know now, like there is no such thing as the right decision. There's there's not one path. It's like, what is it? Like do you, door A or door B, like you don't win or you or lose. It's It's not a zero sum game. You just have to make a choice and figure it out as you go. And luckily for me, being on my own kind of put me into like creativity and productivity overload because I realized my safety net of my paycheck every two weeks was gone. And I was a hundred percent, you know, I had to be a hundred percent self-sufficient. And that was really motivating for me to be like, okay, like I'm taking control of the ship. And like, if it sinks or if it swims, like it's me who's doing it. And I liked that responsibility, I guess. And I still do. But yeah, not a lot of people know like the the way backstory, I guess my my lowest point in advertising, because I think when you hear a lot of stories about someone having a full-time job and then going freelance, it's usually a lot later down the road, maybe after five years of working full-time. And there's a lot of value in that experience. But for me, the unhappiness, I guess, happened so quickly. And I thought there was something wrong with me. I was like, everyone yeah. else, everyone else has a full-time job and they seem fine. Like, what's wrong with me? Like, did I pick I couldn't have picked the wrong agency because it's a great agency. Everyone else here seems to be okay with it. That's also another dangerous thing is like what we were talking about at lunch, Lynn. Mm. Everything's relative. When everyone else around you is trudging through the same stuff and not complaining or not talking about how they actually feel, to me at the time I was like, okay, like everyone likes their job and I'm the weird one. I'm the one who doesn't like her job and something must be wrong with me. But it came to the point where I was like, okay, I can either complain about this job, you know, sit around the water cooler, chat about how like, oh, I worked the weekend or, oh, the client pulled the project or, oh, like my creative director or, oh, the account director. I could do that for the next 20 years. (laughs) Or I could, I realized that I was the, if the job wasn't going to change, I was the variable that could still change. And like I was saying at lunch. Yeah. And it was actually a very profound thought I had at 23, considering how much I was drinking at 23. (laughs) (laughs) But I was telling you at lunch, having people like Jessica Hish or John Contino, people who were visible, who were doing illustration or lettering, especially lettering because it was even more niche in the illustration world, people who I saw doing the thing, like having a career, running their own studios, doing big client work, gave me, definitely helped to nudge me in the right direction of, okay, here's like tangible proof that someone else is doing this. So like, why not me? If they can do it, I can do it. And that shows how important it is to have, you know, sort of visibility and people up there and think, oh, that is actually an achievable task. Because yeah, as you said, Jessica did it. Maybe I could do what Jessica is doing. Maybe. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it can be, I guess, equally intimidating when you see kind of your design idols or someone who is doing the big client work or making a lot of money or who has all the Instagram followers. And you don't necessarily get to see the in-between though of how they got there. And so it's like, oh, well, you know, they're so far along that I'll never get there. So then you don't try either. But I guess coming from an advertising background, this is why I don't regret going to ad school. It's creative problem solving. That's what mm. I majored in. And I realized- I, I wanted to ask you about that, yeah. like whether you'd been able to bring some of that stuff over into what you do now. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I, you know, I, I was just talking to someone about this. I feel like I'm making not a career pivot right now, but there has been this gradual- natural shift actually back towards advertising thinking and creative marketing since I entered lettering. So I feel like I quit ad, I was so burnt out from it, and I went into lettering full force just doing client work because that's what I saw as like in my head, like the epitome of a successful designer was big name clients with big budgets and getting in like the communication arts annual, like winning all the awards, having that kind of traditional. Which you've done. And I've done it, yes. (laughs) But those were like the metrics by which I was gauging success. And so I I checked all the boxes. And yeah, I I feel like now though, now that I'm a little bit farther along, creative marketing and advertising has just seeped its way back in 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 the form of I write most of the things that I letter now. I am good at marketing my work. I just have a knack. Everyone's, I don't know if it's necessarily a knack, but because I come from a marketing background, 
I know how to promote my work. I think honestly, writing is the biggest part. One thing that a lot of people don't know is when I, so my partner and I, when we graduated college, not my romantic partner, but my advertising partner, um, we worked in pairs with a copywriter, art director, but we were two art directors at SVA. And SVA is kind of weird because it's mostly art directors who graduate from there. They don't really have a copywriting program. And so we graduated as two art directors, got hired at BBDO. They didn't bother to ask which one of us was the copywriter or the art director. <laughs> oh, wow. They just assumed that one of you was one. And oh, wow. Yeah, because we had a joint portfolio and they just didn't bother to ask. Right. The same way they never asked for my diploma. Like those technicalities I realized didn't really matter. Um, and so on our like first day, they, they finally asked us and we were like, oh, no, we're both art directors. And they were like, oh, well, one of you needs to be the copywriter. So I actually was the copywriter and art director. So we were kind of this like, you know, double force where we both had all the design skills and Photoshop skills and whatnot. But my partner, he spoke really good English, but his first language uh, was Spanish. And so there were some nuances when it comes to writing for marketing that like, if you have another language as your base, yep. some things just don't quite translate, even if you speak very fluently. And so I ended up being the copywriter. <laughs> Yeah. And so it's all kind of come back yeah. full circle where now I think I'm a better letterer because I know how to write, because I know how to put together a campaign. And so that's that's kind of my sweet spot. I've realized at this intersection of lettering and marketing where I talk with people about this all the time. It's cool. To, and like Jessica was talking about this when I saw her last, it's cool if you can do kind of these one-off beautiful pieces for Instagram for lettering. Mm -hmm. It's like you make something, gets a lot of likes, cool. And you're making these one-off pieces. But the way to really get the big projects and build that really professional-looking portfolio is not a lot of one-off projects, but a lot of campaigns and series mm -hmm. um, that can prove that you can illustrate and execute under one theme yeah. um, with one brief. For an extended time. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And so, you know, for the most part, I've seen it in my career too, where the biggest projects I've gotten have not been single pieces. They're entire campaigns mm -hmm. um, or they're campaigns that span across different media. And I think being able to present that in your portfolio is huge. And having that already in my mind as an advertising major being like, okay, even mocking stuff up, we spent so much time mocking up all the shitty ads we made in ad school into like bus stops and, you know, billboards and stuff. But that, like, putting things into context really matters. You could design something beautiful, but if you want to get hired to do magazine covers or books, Photoshop it onto a book. Yeah. Mm. And it really does make a lot of difference because even as visual people, like, we can't believe or we can't really fully understand an idea till we see it. And so if you think about us needing a visual, think about a client who isn't necessarily creative definitely needing a visual. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, um, I mean, it's interesting about the writing, though, because uh, I think I read an interview where you were asked, you know, your one advice to students and, and your advice was learn to write. And it's, it's the one thing that students are always like, no, no, I'm here for design. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, writing is kind of like it, it forms the basis of everything. If you, and Matt's very excited about this because, you know, he's, he's, a, he's, a, big, he's a big a champion of, of trying, to get, trying to get students to write. Oh, my goodness. Well, even, I mean, it trickles down to little things, even learning how to write descriptions for your projects is huge. And the way that you, if design is communication, so is writing. They go hand in hand. And I mean, that's one thing I could say about my advertising background that definitely lended itself to what I'm doing now is I feel like I had, I came into lettering with a more fully formed idea of what needed to be done because I put together an advertising portfolio. And yeah, I think writing, not I feel like when people think of writing, they think of like learning how to like write a novel. That's not necessarily what you have to do. People are always like, oh, well, I'm not a good writer. And I always say, but you chat with people every day. You're probably somewhat engaging or you have, you have friends and family who think you're interesting and who like the things that you say. Just write the way you talk. Especially, you know, after being here at Max and seeing all these different kinds of creators, I think the one common thread I see, well, there's many, but one of the strong ones is everyone knows how to communicate their ideas or their vision or their thoughts in either writing a script for your video or writing an Instagram caption even. I feel like so many people trip up on, well, you know, I'm a, like you said, I'm a designer, not a writer. But you'll be a better designer if you can write about your design because it's just communication. It's how you package it up. And that's really served me well, especially 
I gave that piece of advice. I don't know what, what interview it was, but I did give that piece of advice of learning how to write specifically for letterers because that's my specialty. I think that one way to differentiate yourself when it comes to lettering is not the actual lettering, but what you're lettering. And I always go back to me starting Daily Dishonesty in college. The lettering was not good. I could show you every single piece that I did for that blog in 2012. The lettering was not good. Objectively, it just wasn't good. There's a lot wrong with it. But the phrases were funny and the concept was there. And I would write these little snarky captions for each image. And I think that's what made it go viral. I don't think it was the lettering. The lettering, and also to the untrained eye, maybe the lettering looked fine. But to, you know, my design eye, especially now, I was like, oh, like, it wasn't great, but why did people share it if it wasn't great, technically? And I think it goes back to, I was talking about this with someone, maybe it was you, Flynn, I'm not sure, last night. There is somebody out there right now who is less talented and less skilled than you who has your dream job (laughs) because they decided to go for it. That's the only reason. Because they pressed send or publish or whatnot over and over and over again. They're living the thing that you want, even though you might begrudge them for not being as technically good as you. Because talent, sheer, like, I guess, technical talent is not what's going to get you there. And I think that there is this this interesting shift right now because – especially with things like the iPad and like a Cintiq tablet and all the new technology coming out. I feel like the older generation of designers or maybe even letterers who used to do everything by hand or did things a certain way feel like there's less of an appreciation for that when they see maybe someone like me or even someone who does strictly all digital lettering. I still do some analog stuff, but people who start straight on the iPad now who don't even ever touch pencil and paper And they see people building audiences around this and they themselves don't have audiences and they're like, oh, like, that's, you know, what a shame. Like, you know, people don't appreciate the technical stuff anymore. But I always say like, and I I hope I can take this advice when I'm in that position, when I'm old and like there's this new wave of designers, they're doing something else besides the lettering that is working. And like, what is that? How can you adopt that into your own practice too? So you think you need to, sort of sounds like you need to kind of try to continue to keep your finger on the pulse as well with the wave. I mean, we were talking on the walk here. We had this great walk here that we could have just recorded, <laughs> um, which which happens a lot. We're talking about kind of changing technologies and we're talking about how you're renting space from Instagram. We were talking about, you know, we're basically renting space from Apple to post our podcast all the time and 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 all that, and all that sort of stuff. So it sounds like it's a very important thing for you to try to keep on Yes, I definitely try to keep my finger on the pulse with that because I think things are moving so fast now that if you, what is, someone talked about it in a talk of digital literacy. Here's one thing that my boyfriend always likes to make fun of me about. I upgraded from an iPhone 5 to an iPhone X. That's how long I waited to get a new phone. Oh, so it was like a big jump. It was a huge (laughs) jump. Oh my goodness. And he was saying, and I never update my like OS X on my my computer. And he was- the same with my wife. It's just (laughs) notifications on absolutely everything. And I'm like, (laughs) the reason your computer doesn't work is because this software is newer than this operating system. She's like, yeah, I just- I just close the notification. Well, yeah, I mean, I was very much raised and I still have a lot of it. Like if it's not broken, don't fix it. Like if it if whatever you have now works, why would you change it? But if you fall too far behind on new technology or new innovations, new programs, then there will be, you know, a big gap. Like you will be illiterate in that new thing that your competition is utilizing to compete with you. And I just see it's it's part of what our jobs are now. Mm. And I think Another thing or a piece of advice I guess I like to give to people who are going to start their own businesses or who are going to go freelance is, one, learn to write. But also, you kind of have to shift your mindset a little bit. You just have to be resourceful and you have to be adaptable. I think that that's been a big thing for me. And we touched on this a little bit in our walk, but I my business has changed a little bit because I'd say two years ago, I was doing 100% client work. Just client work was my income. And then a year after that, it turned into client work, maybe 75%, and then 25% was speaking in workshops. And now, to in 2018, I do about, I'd say, 40% client work, 40% online courses now, and 20% speaking in workshops in person. And so my business has diversified a lot over the last couple of years based on people I've met and conversations I've had where we're sharing information from like, here's what worked for me, here's what didn't. One thing for me was I I feel like when if you go into freelance or if you go into a career with these preconceived notions or these kind of like conventional metrics of how you're going to gauge your success or what you think you should do, it's tough because 
There isn't one clear-cut path for someone. And just because something works for someone else doesn't mean it's going to work for you. I grew up in college watching all these designers, and I didn't know the back end of their business, so who knows, but I saw everyone had an online shop with tote bags and mugs and prints and all the t-shirts. And to me, that was the pinnacle of success was if you can be a designer and work for clients and have your own online store, like you've made it. And so when I opened my online store, granted I used like Society6, like a third party dropshipping thing, I was really devastated when I wasn't making any, no one was buying my posters. Mm. And I was like, oh, I, I wonder why. And, you know, maybe, maybe it's just me. And so after a couple years, I even did a, the real kicker for me was I did a poster collaboration with uh, Good Type, and they've got close to a million Instagram followers. I at the time had maybe almost 100,000. And we did this limited edition, like silkscreen print, like beautiful French paper. And I think we did it, we did a run of 200. And we were like, oh, these are going to, sell out so fast. And we've still, to this day, only sold half of them. Oh, wow. So and co a combined audience of over a million, and we could not sell 200 posters. Yeah. I could not sell. Why do you suppose that is? That seems crazy. Yes, it does seem crazy because the numbers just didn't make sense to me. And that was actually my big aha moment of like, maybe you should stop making posters. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. here's the thing. Maybe people just don't want posters. Yeah, yes. Wow. And I was like, Maybe people don't want posters. Maybe they don't want my posters. Whatever the reason, posters don't work for me. And I think it's because lettering in particular, too, I don't know if it's the same for illustration, but lettering is so, when there's a phrase on your wall, I feel like people are much more particular about having words on their wall than colors and images right. because it's not open to interpretation. Yep. Yep. <laughs> right. And so you could aesthetically really like something, but maybe the phrase is like just ever so slightly not what you want to look at every day you're not going to buy it. I also think that people are moving more and living in like apartments and moving around. And so maybe you don't like cherish your wall art as much as you used to because maybe you'll just get new ones when you go to your new place. Maybe their walls are full. They've got yes. two two spaces where they can hang, hang artwork. and Yeah, maybe the walls are already full. I think we might have actually chatted about this very briefly at the design conference last year when Gemma asked the travel question. Right. One other thing with the posters is I did this project. It's one of my like less successful side projects. Before I went to go travel, I thought I would fundraise for my trip around the world by making travel posters with travel quotes. And I was going to put them online and sell them and try to raise money to like fund my trip. I already had the money saved up, but I was like, it'd be cool if I funded my travels with travel posters. And I had this grandiose plan of making $20,000 from posters. And I really thought I was going to do it. I, I was just coming off of like three very successful passion projects back to back. So like Daily Dishonesty, Ex-Boyfriend Tears, Will Letter for Lunch. And I was like riding this high. And I was like, well, you know, I've hit a home run three times. Like why not go for a fourth one? And the project totally flopped. It maybe made $4,000, which is not nothing in six months. And I was pushing it pretty hard. But one thing that was really a game changer for me, so this is kind of an example of how a failure can be a game changer. At the very last minute when I was building the website, there was a donate button that you could add in like the Squarespace template. And I thought to myself, I was like, okay, who's really going to donate? Because I'm selling posters. But like, why not? I'll just put it there. And I wrote some little funny line that was like, if you love me but hate posters, here's a donate link. And that was it. And at the end of the six months, when I checked the project, I, I went into the back end of, I don't know if it was PayPal or Stripe, and I saw where the money had come in from. I was really shocked that half the money came from donations. Wow. And that was a big aha moment for me because I was like, wait, people want to support me. They want to give me money. They want to support me, but they don't want a poster. Mm. Yeah. And Stop giving me stop, your posters. Stop making posters <laughs> for me. And not saying everyone should stop because, I mean, what? It takes you an hour to upload stuff to like Society6 or Redbubble, whatever you use. Maybe it's not the worst. But one of my big kind of mottos for the last couple of years as I've gotten increasingly busier has been, is the juice worth the squeeze? That is like the number one rule I apply to everything because I'm totally fine with working hard. I'm all about working hard, but the benefit also needs to be equally as great. And I realized that like I could spend the same amount of time designing posters as I could something else that would definitely make more money than posters because I was not making any money from posters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, anything could be yeah, done. But I, yeah. I just, it's kind of that double, double-sided thing where you see people who are successful doing freelance, running their studios, selling posters. So you think that like, okay, I should do the same thing. And in a lot of ways, it's good. But the same path does not work for everybody. 
there are so many little factors that mm. can affect whether you know you're better on video or you're better selling this or that or whatever it is. Even finding your niche as a designer, like what kind of clients you want to work for. You know, you can't just work for the same clients that everyone else. I think, I mean, I I definitely went through this too, where I wanted to work for all the big clients that everyone else was working for. And I never really stopped to think about like, but like, who would I really, I would, who would I like to yep. work for? Yep. Because the same with the awards, the same with, you know, the prestige, you, whatever everyone else wants is like, oh, I should want that too. But you can define that for yourself. You just need another ravioli moment. To kind yes. of <laughs> you know, cold ravioli is not that bad. <laughs> 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 one one of the projects you haven't mentioned that I, I wanted to bring up was uh, flower crowns. Yes, because is that still going? Because it it is. It is. Yeah. So I I've actually we can talk about this because I haven't talked about this on a or I haven't done a podcast since in a while. But flower crowns. So I have two passion projects that I am running right now. So it's flower crowns and pink cuisine. I don't know if you've seen either of them. No, I haven't seen the second. Okay, one. Okay, great. Because right. if you haven't, then definitely look it up after this. But I for the last five years that I've been working, I've basically started two passion projects a year as my hobby slash marketing arm of my business. Passion projects have been this kind of sweet spot for me where I get to work on something fun and it markets my work for me. So it's just like the ultimate thing. And so I've been doing two a year and I did Flower Crowns and Pink Cuisine this year or last year, I get no, this year. And what I failed to realize is I can't keep doing the same amount of projects because I'm busier now. Yeah. Right. So I've been trying to figure out a better format of with flower crowns and with with pink cuisine, there wasn't any like, I didn't put like a stop or a start on it. I didn't say this was going to be a series of 20 or 30. And so it's kind of just ongoing and I don't have a regular posting schedule. So they're both alive and well, but I just do them when I can. And for our listeners, flower is flower as in bread. Yes, F-L-O-U-R. So. I, think, I think you're, uh, I love the way you put it on your site. Lauren Home is a designer putting bread on her head, <laughs> <laughs> which is brilliant. Yeah. It's, I, I, I had so much fun writing little taglines for that. It was putting bread on my head, the toastest with the mostest. Nice. Like that one. And number 20, you had someone else modeling. Yes, that was uh, my assistant, Lauren. Yeah, we were in, that was actually right after the design conference. Right, okay. Yep. Yeah, that's why I did avocado toast. Well, ah. technically it wasn't smashed avo, but it was a reference to being in Austria. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> we appreciate it. We've also spoken a lot about the awards, but I noticed you haven't brought up one of the awards, which is my favorite, the uh, town's annual hula hoop contest that you won when <laughs> you were eight. <laughs> Where did you find that one? Did, <laughs> that a, you probably scoured any interviews I did. Yeah, that was uh, the first award I ever won was my local like county hula hooping contest at the 4th of July like fair. I won a basket of like, I won one of those like baskets that someone would send like a CEO where it was like salami and like Brilliant. yeah like <laughs> right. fancy cheeses and like meats and like candy so and, really for your parents not for you <laughs> yeah <laughs> definitely but yeah I've always had like a competitive streak I would say and I've always been good at weird things like like hula hooping and my parents always like to joke that like I've been like a born entrepreneur I used to this is gonna make me sound like a terrible child but they think it's funny. I used to charge my brother 10 cents to make him breakfast in the morning because I valued my time. Yeah. You know, nice. it's it's interesting too because I feel like that's where a lot of designers, myself included when I was starting out, kind of stumble is really putting a premium on your time and your creativity. And if you grew up in an environment, which most of us did, where you were told that art can be a hobby, but you can't make money from it, don't expect to. Like it's not, we weren't taught that it's valuable. We were taught that like, Doctors and lawyers are the ones who make money. Creativity yeah. is not necessarily the thing that's going to make you money. I don't know if I was born with it or, or whatnot. My dad does work in like kind of finance. He's the chief financial officer of this small company that buys and sells precious metals. But that's kind of finance. Yeah, that's yeah, it's finance. You're right. It's the gold market. <laughs> but yeah, I I was never shy about charging for my time, even my little brother. And you could you could argue and say like, oh, like you should do it out of the goodness of your own heart because he's your brother. But I've also heard that same argument for designers, and I don't buy into it. You should yep. do it out of the goodness of your, you should design this for free because she's your aunt. No, you know, your time is really valuable. Absolutely. And yeah. you can choose to do that, but I I think it's a really toxic kind of thought pattern to get into when if you start doing too much work for free, then you'll never gain the confidence or skills to ask for money yeah. or more mm -hmm. money. That's one part of design is, is business. You have to be, 
profitable to stay in business. Mm. You know, designers are not just these like humanitarians who just like do free design. (laughs) I talked to a lot of people about that and I, I had to come to terms with it too. I feel like a lot of us struggle with like wanting to make art and then feeling bad about also wanting to make money. There's a weird, like, Mm. because we're taught that those two things don't go together, but it's a business. You should get compensated for your time. And that was one kind of block I had when I started being less client-facing and actually teaching because I was teaching my peers and people who looked up to me. I had a weird thing about pricing with that because I was like, oh, like, it's easy for me to be like, okay, it's a client. They have money. Like, pay me. But when it's someone who's my peer or someone who is, I guess, maybe a couple years younger than I am, I can't apply that same mentality. It ethically does not feel like the same thing. Like whatever the market will bear, like, no, I I want to price in a way that feels good for me and good for them. And it's, you could, you know, battle with it internally for days, but it was interesting to try to find a price point where it was like, my time is being valued. I feel like I'm being compensated well for my experience and the work I've done and the classes I put together, but also make it somewhat accessible for Mm. the next generation of designers. And that's one thing I talk with my assistant, the one who modeled the avocado crown about this all the time, just like design ethics and pricing and all this stuff. Because what we were talking about at lunch about me being a big fan of Jessica Hish and looking up to her when I was in design school and now me being on the other side of that, there's a big responsibility there to like pay some of it forward or pass some of it down. But I was talking with some, one of the other Adobe insiders about this. It's strange when people are used to getting your content for free. Yep. It is a weird thing that people are, I don't think people even put two and two together that when you follow someone on Instagram, a photographer, an illustrator, you they're putting that out for free for years. Mm. And I realized that and I was like, okay, it's okay to ask. It's okay to ask, hey, I made another thing. Do you want to pay for it? Like you're not forcing anyone, you're not putting a pay gate to your Instagram. I guess you could, that could be a thing. But, <laughs> you know, I think people fail to realize that They've been putting out all this stuff for free, even Mm. if it's just their work, because people feel like, oh, it's personal work. That's not work. It still is work. You're adding immense value to someone else's day or life. I get so many comments on posts that are like, you know, thank you for this. I really needed this. Or like this brightened my day or whatnot. And yeah, it's really valuable. And so one, one shift I've made in the last, I think, two years has been, you know, I've been serving clients for five years now. And my entire, I guess, career and marketing strategy has been, how do I make more projects to get more clients, and how do I serve those clients? But now I've kind of flipped around and been like, okay, how do I apply that same mentality but to my community? What I keep telling my friends is investing in your community and like nurturing that and also selling to them like in a way that feels good. Like You should be unapologetic about that because you've been putting out all this free stuff and your time is valuable the same way it is with a client. Investing in my community and being more community-facing has been more profitable for me than client work. which has been a game changer. And it's allowed me to have more autonomy in my business. And it's funny how, going back to that blog post that you mentioned, like me burning out from advertising, thinking that freelance was what was going to save me, and then doing freelance and winning the awards and getting the big clients and still feeling burnt out. Yeah. (laughs) Because what I failed to realize was when you're freelance and that's 100% of your income, you are at the beck and call of those clients. If you get briefed on a Friday, guess who's working the weekend? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Because that's always when the brief comes in. <laughs> it really is. It really, really is. And I was talking with a friend the other day about how I remember one weekend I got briefed on a Friday. It was actually my old advertising agency who had hired me. They needed some lettering for a thing they were doing. They didn't hire you to be a copywriter? No, no. They just hired me as a letterer. I, I enjoy both of those kinds of work where I'm just a hired letterer mm. and I go in and I execute. And then I really like when there are projects where I get a little bit more of the conceptual and creative freedom. But yeah, they they hired me. They briefed me. It was like a 48-hour turnaround. It was brutal. I didn't wow. sleep. But I made like $12,000 on a weekend. But that was kind of my conundrum with freelance because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm I'm doing the thing. I'm making making a lot of money. I'm working with the big clients, but I feel like I have no control over my life. You could just be working nonstop. Oh my goodness. And I am totally susceptible to the scarcity mentality of like, I have to say yes, because what if nothing comes in after this? Because you just don't know. And so teaching has added kind of like a safety net or base layer to my business where I can be like, okay, I don't have to take that because I know I have money coming in from classes. And I think that's one piece of advice I would give now that I wouldn't have given two years ago because I didn't know about it, is I think that every design studio, designer, whatever you are, 
even if you're working full time and you have a great job that you like, I think everyone should have some source of passive income from either a class that you make or a Photoshop brushes, whatever they are, something else that is generating money consistently because it really, it's done wonders for my creative process because I'm not constantly anxious about when the next job is coming in because it matters less. I'm just waiting for the universal income. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but until then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, um, your course is The Art of Lovely and Legible Lettering. And did I overhear that you've got another one? Yes. So I actually, the lettering class was my second class. Oh. My first class that I launched that I'm launching again, so I have two. There's a lettering class. It's five hours of like pre-recorded video, workbooks, all the goods. I like to consider it the equivalent of sitting with me in my studio for a day and me walking you through my entire process. But my first course, I actually didn't start with a lettering course, which most people are surprised with. I started with a marketing course. So I run a class called Passion to Paid, which is used to be 10 weeks. I condensed it to five weeks to make it easier for people to take. And now that I've taught it three times, I can condense the program. It walks you through how to like ideate and like create and market and leverage a passion project into paid work because that's what I've done consistently throughout my entire career. After I did about four passion projects, I realized there was kind of like a rhyme and a reason. There was a method to it. And so I distilled that into like a course and I teach the course live. I have videos and then I do live like Q&A sessions every week. And yeah, it, that one, I when I launched it, I was like, is anyone really going to sign up for this? I don't know. But yeah, people people signed up for it. I just really want to see the course about like Lauren Home designing posters. <laughs> <laughs> I could teach a terrible class on how to make a living selling posters. <laughs> no, but the poster, the, the failure of posters was what pushed me towards online education and doing more speaking in workshops because after so long, when you look at the numbers, you're like, okay, I'm spending a lot of time on this and it's not moving the needle on my business mm -hmm. at all. This is not sustainable. And I don't, what is that? My dad is my dad. The 80-20 rule? Hmm? The 80-20 rule? Yes, the 80-20. And also my dad used to say this phrase to us, that fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And that always stuck with me because if you do something over and over again and it's not working, it's your fault for continuing to do it. Yeah, isn't that supposed to be the definition of insanity? Of, of insanity? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yes, absolutely. And I like making posters. I love designing you know, graphics with lettering, but I could be doing that not for posters. I could be doing it for something else or I could save that time and, and make something else and yeah, that was a big game changer in pushing me towards, okay, if I'm not going to sell posters, what else can I sell? Because I feel like it looks cool to have a store, but if it's not really making any money, you probably shouldn't sink too much more time into it, like you said, the 80-20 rule. So yeah, it's every year of, of running my own business has been more learning, more shifting. Like I would say that the first two years were very kind of linear of like freelance, freelance, more freelance, bigger clients, and it it followed that path. And then... I think part of the story too was 2014 and 2015, I had really good years and I kept making more money. And I was like, oh, everyone says freelance is unpredictable. That's wrong. Like freelance is great. But I also, you know, got luckier with, with three very successful passion projects that made their way around the internet during that time. And so work was just pouring in. Because when you show that you can do something, people are likely to want to hire you for it. Mm. And so back to the, the Will Letter for Lunch thing. I, I didn't start it because I had no money. I started it because I wanted to do chalk lettering, but I didn't have any of it in my portfolio. And I could have just made some chalk signs, but I, with my ad brain, was like, I'm going to package this up into something way cooler and like more interesting. And so that's how that started. So I did it for, the, for most, mostly the PR and the, I guess, getting eyes on like me as a chalk letterer. Um, it was such a win-win project because mm -hmm. uh, you got free lunch, you also got publicity, the, mm -hmm. the place that you were doing it for also got publicity, which yeah. is just, it's just everyone won. Honestly, it was, I consider Will Letter for Lunch one of my least creative ideas. Bartering is not new. No. <laughs> it's really, it's really not new. Like conceptually, maybe one of the least creative, but executionally and how it, how it ended up playing out, it was so relatable and like easy to digest for someone that it was definitely the project that generated the most freelance work and the mm. most PR for my business. I don't share this story very often. I did get one mean email from a designer who I will not name. I don't remember their name anyways. I got one mean email from a designer who was like, hey, I hope that you know that by lettering for free lunch, you're hurting the design community. Like there are, you're taking jobs away from chalk letterers like who would have gotten paid to do that. And I didn't respond. 
because I was so deeply, I'm, I'm very sensitive with email. So I just deleted it right away. But I'll, I read it, of course. You can't unread it. And I remember asking my friend, I was like, am I a monster? Like, did, am I like <laughs> totally undervaluing what I'm doing? And they were like, no, like that person obviously failed to see your end game for this project. You're not trying to do chalk lettering for food forever. This is obviously like a stunt, like an advertising stunt. And you can do it for as long as you want to. But I had already set up the project in a way where I was only doing one per week anyways. And I actually, because the project got so much buzz right out of the gate, I had so many requests that I would use that only one a week rule as leverage to get paid to do any more than that. I actually heard that psychologically when you say like, oh, like I have this rule that I only do one a week. If you, yep. if you say it's something that's a rule, people are less likely to question it. Right. That same thing goes for saying like, I'm vegetarian or I'm vegan. No one's going to pressure you to eat meat after that. Whereas yep. if you say, oh, I don't really know if I want to eat meat, but you don't say it's a rule, people will push harder. Yep. <laughs> yep. Like yeah. if you say, oh, I don't, I don't like onion, they're like, oh, do you not like it or are you allergic? And if I say, oh, I'm allergic, yes. they'll say, oh, okay, no problem. But if you say, no, I, I just don't like it, they're like, try it, eat yes. it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you like it. You like it. I think I did <laughs> try that too my last night. Onions. <laughs> yeah, try my onions. <laughs> They're <laughs> different um, than other onions. Yeah, that brings us to time. Yeah. I've got Ooh. so many more questions and you've been so accommodating. So <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it's been great. Where can people find out more about you and your courses? People can mostly find me on, I'd say, Instagram right now, instagram.com slash homsweethom. I also have homsweethom.com, which is where you found my blog post that I haven't released yet, but you spilled the beans and I love it. And then, yeah, my my courses you can just find at homsweethom.com slash classes. Easy. Fantastic. Thank you very yes. much, Matt. Matt underscore Leach, if you want to see some circles. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. I'm at Flynn Tracy on everything. And you can find this episode more at AUSDesignRadio.com. And you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud at AUSDesignRadio. Thank Thanks, you. Lauren. Thanks for having me.